have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. LeBronc1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and your perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. I'm in the studio today with our producer, Antonia Conti, and our distinguished guest, Dr. Julie Jorbridge, a professor of biology, behavioral neuroscience, and health sciences. Rolls right off the tongue, Julie. <laughs> um, and today we are going to be talking about uh, the food we eat and the environment. Welcome, Dr. Jorbridge. Thank you. And so can you tell us a little bit about your interest and your background in you know, food, sustainability, and the environment? Well, I've been eating for a very long time, <laughs> um, <laughs> as everyone has been. Yeah, very good. Um, but for the first time, I taught half of the Sustainability 100 course last semester, and I was trying to think of something that would engage the students in the second half of the semester. And one of the issues in sustainability um, is the environment and how it's connected to the food that we eat. It turns out that a big part of everyone's carbon footprint is the foods that they eat and also the food that they waste. Okay, just to keep everybody on the same page, uh -huh. so, you know, so what do you mean by sustainability? Ah, that's a good question. It's not really clear what's meant by sustainability. Um, sustainability Very unlike you to talk yeah, at things I know, in a trailer. <laughs> I know. So um, the way I interpret it, it's a way of approaching your activities um, in a way that promotes the health of the environment and also promotes the health of the people around you. So it's got to do with social equity, it's got to do with health, and it's got to do with preserving our natural environment. Okay. And I think that's probably... And so your, your topic was trying to induce that, trying to get it related to food. Right. And everybody has to eat. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, especially undergraduates, don't eat well. Okay? They don't eat to promote their own health. And, and Tony, I, think, I just laid a big smile. Yeah. And I, I know. See the, She's the eating barbecue chips right now in <laughs> bottled water. <laughs> Which I'm sure we're going to get to. There are many sustainability issues in Antonia's snack. Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so not, not to interrupt. So, so you're so you're t you're telling us a little bit about why sustainability in food is important, right? And why, um, if you pay attention to what you eat, you're also promoting the health of the environment. Um, and people talk about carbon footprint, and your carbon footprint is. And what really, does that mean for? Yeah, it's just um, it's just this your CO two output as a human. Okay, so you can think of the carbon dioxide you're personally putting into the atmosphere, and a lot of energy goes into producing food. A lot of energy goes into 
processing food, a lot of energy goes into wasting food. And so about 25% of the CO2 each individual is responsible for is from their food consumption. So it's a big part of, um, of sustainability issues. Okay. So you can... You have power over changing your carbon footprint just by paying attention to what you. And so, so your your interest in teaching this class was to engage the students into thinking about the food they eat, its effect on the environment, both locally and and locally locally and and, and globally, and just to put it out there. What is the essence of what we're going to talk about today, sort of your opinion, what some people call the left-wing liberal academic agenda? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Or or, or are you coming from evidence-based decision-making and evidence-based teaching here? Well, there's um, one of the things that became really clear as I was doing research for the course is that it's really difficult to actually put a number on an individual's carbon footprint, because there's a lot of sort of fudge factors that you Mm -hmm. have to include when you do this. Um, But to the extent possible, it is evidence-based. I think all of sustainability studies, the take-home message is it's really complicated. And since you're looking at a variety of issues, then your decision-making um, is basically you're doing a lot of the best you can. Mm-hmm. And so th- some of those things we're going to yeah. explore throughout our conversation today, throughout our program. And so part of what we're doing is we want people to be, to be aware of what they're eating, their effect on the environment. We want, in a sense, transparency Yes. Right, which would be important mm-hmm. on both the consumer end on the business end because there are those things don't necessarily match up. Correct. And those are kind of, probably the kinds of things that came up um, in your class. Definitely. Um, we're going to be talking about I can imagine <coughs> um, sort of some uh, geographical differences and mm-hmm. what's appropriate and inappropriate. There are environments where food is grown in, um, you know. Pretty arid, dry conditions, and right. you know, food needs water. And there's times where it's grown in different kinds of conditions, and so w- that's what part of the complications to make sustainability in this realm so difficult. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, because there's exactly. no there's no rule that affects everybody in every place the same. Right. So so if you if you're looking for a formula for how to make your own your your eating carbon footprint more sustainable the only answer i have is it depends it depends yeah and it 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 depends where you are in the country there are Mm -hmm. geopolitical forces um one could make the argument and um it's that it's a first world nation problem because here in the united states we have choices other people in in other countries may not have the same choices we have and i'm just i want to i want to put those things out there to to lay the foundation for our program so nobody thinks that we're just like telling people like this is this is what you need to do right Right. this is what you need i remember people on car you know college campuses like you know you'd walk around like with a like a soda can in those old days that had those pull tops and, you know, and, like, you drop off one of those pull tops. I'm old enough. You remember right. the pull tops. I do. You drop it on the ground, and somebody would yell, you don't care about the planet. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing that. Well, it's true. You should have put a little top inside <laughs> the can. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they, they, Antonia has no idea what we're talking about. But if you took out a metal detector, you'd find those things under the ground. That's right. Um, They're all over the beach. But, but we're not about that. We're, we're trying to talk about it's sort of an awareness. It's a being, um, 
Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to talk for you, but no, it's about. But it's also about personal health, mm-hmm. and so sort of when does your when do your personal health choices actually coincide with the health of the environment? And we can talk simply about being in New Jersey. It's kind of a cheat because we actually are the Garden State. Mm-hmm. I drive by four farms on my way to work, and I only have ten miles to go. So it's um, we have we we're in a food rich environment where we do have access to a lot of food, and where I think some of the choices are a little bit more clearly made. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it, like we live in. And I would argue certain parts of New Jersey because there are right. parts of New Jersey that are food deserts. Right, and they're not might, very far from here. They're not. They're they're also within that ten mile radius, That's right. um, which you're not commuting from. But the idea is that people who live in a, a place where you know, access to some of the things we're going to talk about mm-hmm. is limiting, might not have the choices that, you know, people in suburbia right. have. Access is a huge issue. And I think it's one of the huge issues in sustainability, too, which is one of the reasons I'm attracted to some of the studies that they do, because they do talk about um, equity in terms of energy access mm-hmm. and energy in terms of energy to heat your house, but also energy in, in the food that you eat. So I can imagine part of our conversation is going to be lo- the discussion of local. Local. Yeah, yeah. what does local what mean? What does local mean? Exactly. That's where I'm going with this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you want me to answer that? Or the way go I right, go right ahead. Okay. You're, 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 so, you're guiding this discussion. I'm <laughs> throwing stuff out there. So eating local, what does it mean? Yep. And and what is its effect on the environment? And if we talk about here in Lawrenceville, Trenton, Princeton, New Jersey area, um, local can mean in your backyard really easily. So one of the one of the things that um, is really interesting to think about is historically, we or our undergraduates, the stu- the students here may not know anyone who owns a farm or who runs a farm. And that's actually unusual. Two generations ago, everybody had a farm in their family. That's right. Um, and so the distance that we've come from understanding that you pull carrots out of the ground and that's where they come from. They don't come yeah, from the Yeah, the old joke packaging. is somebody from the inner sea says, where does milk come from? They right. say a store. A store. And then you push them. They say, no, no, it comes from the carton. Right. I did. It actually is coming out of a living animal. There's a living animal and that animal is being taken care of by... T- being yeah. taken care of by someone. And like those that. are important things. Um, and, and so local is the connection to where our food comes from. Right. But local, like, you know, could also be distance. You know, the state of Texas is a big state. It is. And so local could be one side of Texas to another, which is not like, I don't know, Rhode Island or something like that. No, I would say, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or it could be your own backyard. Um, interesting. And all these, th- these are all things that we want to talk about in the, the nature of our conversation. And we're, uh, we're going to start talking about food and food supply chains um, after some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 The live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Julie Drawbridge, and we are talking about food, the environment. 
with an emphasis on sustainability and carbon footprints. And we did an overview in our last segment. And so in this segment, uh, one of the things that I want to talk about is what Dr. Drawbridge was beginning to talk about, which I think is collectively called like the food supply chain. Right. What, what is that? And tell us why that's important and why is that somebody, what, something that somebody should be thinking about. Um, the food supply chain is actually a lot more complicated than most people think. We don't usually think a lot about where our food comes from or how far it had to go to get to us. And we don't usually think about when we're cleaning out the refrigerator, how much energy went into the production of the food that we are about to throw into the garbage. Um, so that supply chain includes things like how much energy did it take to grow the food, whether it be animal or vegetable that you're eating, um, how much energy did it take to transport that raw material to possibly a processing center? I'm still looking at the potato chips that Antonia has. <laughs> Sorry, I put them in my bag. Antonia, it's nice to share. <laughs> so someone had to grow the potatoes. They probably grew those in Maine or Idaho. And there was a lot of fertilizer, herbicides, pesticides, probably, unless you're, unless you're going to tell me those are organic potato chips. They're not. Okay. <laughs> um, so energy, that's got a huge uh, energy cost. Pesticides, herbicides, all, are, all the things that farmers depend on to be able to create a big yield. Um, and so where did those potatoes come from? How far did they have to go to go to the processing center where they were made into those delicious chips with their barbecue flavoring <laughs> and who even knows how much it took to make that barbecue flavor which i don't know what it's made out of but there was a process mm -hmm. and then it had to be packaged mm -hmm. okay so it probably came in a cellophane or a plastic container so how much energy did it you mm -hmm. know how much energy went into production of that it got to the grocery store the grocery store had to keep it in some way, so there's the carbon footprint of the store itself. It has to be heated. It has to be cooled. Yeah. Um, and then you purchase it, and you bring it home, and you open it up, and then you bring it to the studio, unfortunately, on the day when we're talking about <laughs> sustainability <Really>? and, <laughs> and food, mm -hmm. and you're going to eat it. And if you throw any of, it, any of it away, all the energy that went into production of those chips then gets wasted. It gets put into the landfill, probably, mm -hmm. where it doesn't degrade unless you compost it. Okay, so each, at each step, you're talking about how much of an impact is my eating having on the environment? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and a big part of what you're saying, just to put words on it succinctly, is the food business in many respects is a logistics business. Oh, yes. It's moving stuff around. Mm -hmm. It's getting it to where you need it to be. Um, and the way that you, you describe this, I'm reminded of a commercial that's on TV now with strawberries. Um, I don't know if you've, you've seen it, but it shows everything from a strawberry being picked all the way through all these different steps. It's harvesting, it's mm -hmm. washing, it's packaging, it's marketing in the supermarket, going into somebody's refrigerator, and then it gets pushed in the back of the refrigerator, and then a, 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 kid, a kid throws it away, yeah. and it's like, don't waste this stuff. And so the idea is when people talk about the food supply chain, that's the kind of things they're talking about. And it's exactly. not only with potatoes or strawberries, but it includes, we mentioned before, milk, but it's also with meat products, mm -hmm. fish. It's all this sort of stuff. Right. And so if you are interested in saying, okay, what can I do um, to reduce my carbon footprint? And you're thinking about, well, I could grow my own food. And you immediately eliminate 
the production far away, mm -hmm. um, the packaging, the storing in the grocery store. Well, well, let me ask you this. Should we have, as people in a first world nation here in New Jersey, access to all foods all the time? And I'll put it right. most foods have growing seasons. They most do. foods have a whole bunch of things hosted to them. But, you know, when you want a banana, you want to be able to buy a banana. Should right. we, should, I mean, what do you think? I think it's good to think about those things. Um, so bananas, of course, don't grow here. Not at all. Yeah. Um, they grow far away. And, they, <laughs> and they're not away. necessarily grown using, um, using good, sustainable um, husbandry practices. And they also maybe were picked by someone who doesn't get paid a lot um, and may not even be able to afford the bananas that they're picking so that they can be packaged and sent to the United States. Mm -hmm. So I would argue n there's not necessarily we've become used to this food being available all the time, but there's more of a cost to eating that way. And also it doesn't taste as good. Do you eat tomatoes in the winter? We live oh. in the t Garden State, and tomatoes are famous. So, Antonio, do you eat tomatoes in the winter? No. Yeah. Really. Because why? I don't know. They're just not as good, I guess. No, they taste horrible. Yeah. Um, and they taste horrible because they were shipped from far away um, when they weren't ripe. Mm -hmm. um, and if you wait until July, August, September, then you have these awesome, really good tomatoes that say, and you just eat as many as possible, or you can preserve them. Um, but, but but there are a lot of people who say, I I want to be able to put to use tomatoes on my food whenever I want. I want to be able to use a recipe that involves tomatoes right. all the time. Um, and just to, in some of the stuff that I was reading, and yeah. there was actually a study done in Great Britain where mm -hmm. they actually said the uh, you, you're, you're nodding because you probably said the same thing that the the energetic costs of growing tomatoes sometimes outweigh the energetic costs of some animals because they're grown in greenhouses with a constant light, heat, humidity, right. all these things that go into it, and so right, and so that. so it's a so it's an issue if you're if. If you're interested in your carbon footprint, that's an issue that you'd want to think about. Where And I think that eating seasonally is also something that we've lost the rhythm with the seasons. We control our environment. Um, for instance, there's now something like, oh, I don't know, I want to say five or six times more indoor square footage in Manhattan than there is land area. Oh, you mean because they're, they're building up? Yep. Yes, they're going up. And so we spend a lot of time indoors. We don't have a life that, that moves with the rhythm of the seasons, mm -hmm. unless you're talking about the school calendar, which is based on an agricultural calendar. Yeah, which, which is, is so, with the idea which is an anachronism. Can, the kids can go home and like help with the and harvest. And help with the harvest. In the summer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that is a very antiquated thing that is in society. So but, I, and just to expand that, people aren't even aware now that like, um, animals in the wild actually have breeding seasons. Correct. Right, and so right. The, the, you know, there's not always an availability of animals all the time if we were relying on a natural thing. That's but true. in a first world nation, just like with the tomatoes, people, you know, if you want your meat if products, you want, you want chickens, you mm -hmm. want eggs, you want these things, and this you know, consumer society is almost demanded that this stuff's always available. Right, and so if a consumer wants to pay attention to that, I think that's you know that's something that they can do. They can. Um, if you go to a farmer's market, you can see through the growing season what's available at different times. Uh, the sustainability students went to 
um, Gravity Hill Organic Farm here in Hopewell. Okay. Um, and the first thing the woman who owns the farm, Maria, asked them was, what's in season right now? It was April. I bet you they look just like Antonia right yeah, now. Yeah, so Antonia, what's in season in New Jersey in April? Honestly, I have no idea. So you can get asparagus. Um, there's sometimes spinach available, but it's not a lot. It's the beginning of the growing season, and it's, you know, sort of strawberries are almost there, maybe. Um, so possibly lettuce. Some of that's been grown indoors, though. Mm -hmm. So Just to be fair, at the, really in the beginning of the spring, that's when a lot of animals start giving birth. It is. So there are young so animals. <laughs> right, those kinds Lamb. of things are available, mm -hmm. right? And stuff that's interesting. So you, I want to bring up this idea, too, because it comes up a lot in the discussion about sustainability, is the idea of big versus small. Does sustainability necessarily mean small, or can it also be big food? And What do you mean, business? big food? Well, big food would be more like instead of a local farm that right. might be growing local produce and putting it at the farmer's market, big farms, big produce, um, and supermarket kind of thing, or big farm in terms of animal production. Does sustainability necessarily mean small? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, in fact, there are interesting studies we talk a lot about. So we haven't talked a lot about eating animals. Um, turns out that animals are um, energy intensive. They're energy intensive to raise. It takes a lot of, of um, food and also fertilizers, all kinds of things to raise animals. And um, Intensive farming is very controversial. We yeah. find animal food absolutely. operations. And so big farming doesn't necessarily mean unethical, and small farming I mean, doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean, mean ethical. ethical. There's the, the union compo uh, the human component to this, and it, mm -hmm. it is it, there's there's a business component um, to it too. And I can I, right. I, I can see that's good. That's going to be our next, next okay. segment. <laughs> uh, so we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 thebronkcom from healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronco, 1077 TheBronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio today with Dr. Julie Drawbridge, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Science, who is talking about food, the food we eat, the environment, and sustainability. And at the end of the last segment, we were starting, we, we brushed around the topic of big agriculture, whether it be right. for fruits and vegetables whether it be for grains or even for, for animal products. Um, and, there, you know, we live in a society where a lot of people picket big agriculture, but big agriculture doesn't necessarily mean bad when we talk about sustainability. No, and it also has to do with location. So there's a lot of controversy around confined animal feedlots. These are, these are places where animals are grown quickly because they're given energy-rich um, food, and they're grown in confined spaces. And um, none of us like thinking about an animal that essentially can't move for most of its life, mm -hmm. is overfed, and then butchered for food. 
Um, but there, there are a couple of studies that show if you want to eat beef and you live in the Amazon, a confined animal food operation might be the better way to go because otherwise what you're talking about is clearing Amazon forests. And that is a big issue in the sustainability huge, world. So, huge. right, is, is eliminating you know, biodiversity to create to unidiversity. To create unidiversity mm -hmm. and to create space for large animals that we happen to find tasty. Mm -hmm. uh, go so ahead, what about Antonia. like what about like free range animals? So free range animals, it depends on the range. So okay. I uh, yeah. Um, so here in New Jersey, it turns out New Jersey is a great place to grow cows. <laughs> Um, okay. And you and you can see that uh, even down the road, about less than a mile, is Cherry Grove Farm, where they have um, where they have a small operation where they graze cows, and they also um, I think they do what's called tractoring, which is you graze the cows on a small piece of land for a little bit of time, then you move them off that land and you put chickens on it, and what the chickens do is they peck at the um, poop and they get rid of parasites that that the cows would otherwise leave there. And then the grass has a chance to regrow, and then the cows are somewhere else, and then they can move, be moved back on. So there's this alternating thing. That's, so the animal equivalent of a crop rotation. Exactly. And it turns out that some land in New Jersey is much better for growing grass than it is for growing vegetable crops. And so, um, so that kind of cow might be a more sustainable um, alternative to a cow that's been grown in a confined animal feedlot in Colorado or Texas, okay, where the water intensity and things is quite high, um, and then shipped here. So, so yeah. you're so, sort of so, thinking about, you know, so, where am I right. and what's available. So here. if you bring in meat from, to use New Jersey, if you right. bring in meat from not only Colorado but. Chicago or Nebraska right. or even New Zealand, which is has actually right. optimized the process, you have to, in terms of its footprint, you're thinking about not just the like the shipping cost of the meat, but what went into feeding the animal, watering the animal, oh. the health of the animal. Right. Um, refrigeration, all, which is refriger not, Refrigeration. Yeah. And, you know, it comes up against access. You know, like, right. like, like, should we have access to all foods all the time? And restaurants would like to have predictable foods on their menu. People want to have access, to, at least in New Jersey, the foods that they want. Um, and it comes into a, an issue here. And big business can sometimes optimize some of these things. They can. And, and so sometimes... Some but they can also obscure um, what we call externalities. Mm -hmm. And what do so you mean by externalities? The collateral damage that's being done by producing something a certain way that no one seems to be paying for other than, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People are paying People for, are paying okay, for it, but indirectly. Yeah, yes. Um, and so with the confined animal feed operation, the other thing that we need to think about is antibiotic resistant mm -hmm. bacteria. Because, because they treat the animals. can't grow these animals. Yeah. Um, in such confined spaces without plying them with tons of antibiotics, and that means the, the, what you're creating in their guts is an antibiotic-resistant population of bacteria mm. that then gets into things like the water supply. Mm. Um, and those, because bacteria are real good at swapping genes with each other, um, that very quickly ends up being an issue for, for human health yeah. as well. Yeah. And often the the way the animals taste. And um, I, I've read articles yeah. that say one of the things that people have done is 
because like chickens, for example, are sold by the pound. Mm -hmm. People have engineered chickens that are like big, fat, and muscular and yeah. can't walk around very well. Um, but they grow very fast because mm -hmm. it's less expensive to have them grow fast so you can sell them sooner. Right. And then... They, and they're they, giant. They're giant. They have these huge breasts. <laughs> yeah, I'm in a room with two women. And then, and then, and then you, you know, but then when you try to cook them and eat them, they don't taste like chicken they did. They taste like water. Years and yeah. years ago. And what I read an article and they were comparing recipes from, let's say, the 1920s recipe cookbooks from the 1920s and 1930s to recipe cookbooks for chicken that are more recently, that are our contemporaries now. Right. And it used to be get a piece of chicken, put some salt, pepper on it, and cook it. Now, what are all the things they're putting on Chicken, because it doesn't taste, because the animals have been engineered to get the, you know, the more chicken you need, the less chickens you, you know. Right. You, it's because they're these big fat, or not really fat, but these big meaty things now. That don't taste like much. They don't taste, they, yeah. And I, when I was a kid, a three-pound chicken was a giant chicken. And now you can get five, six-pound <laughs> yeah. chickens. They're kind of monsters. And, and they're almost all breast meat. Yeah, and my... Um, my parents used to raise chickens, too, and some of them that were the white longhorns. And I do remember seasons where they were so big that it was difficult for them to walk before they got you know, butchered in the backyard. Yeah. And <laughs> but all these, are the, all these are part of thinking about the food that we eat mm -hmm. and how food has changed over the years and, and the culture of food, the creating of hybrids. And the idea that going back to like, you know, small and organic is not necessarily good because if you're going to have an organic farm and you're not going to use pesticides and things, you might lose. Your yield goes down. Yeah, you're, you, you might lose 70 or 80 percent of your crop. Even on farms that use pesticides, they lose 30 or 40 percent of their crop to vermin and insects and things like that. And that's money out the window. That's money lost if you don't have effective, you know, crop per hectare. Right, know, right. So, so food access is huge too, and it, and um, when we're when we're talking about sort of herbicides, pesticides, all the things that we've been applying to crops since World War II, that's a fairly recent, um, a fairly recent um, event yeah. in farming practice, mm -hmm. and we're only doing it because. Well, on um, a big scale, companies. a big hail since World War II. Just from my background, I know a lot of the nasty drugs that were used in World War One were developed as pesticides, Sides. but they realized in high doses would kill people too, not just insects. And then you're right, but it right. came on the massive scale after World War II. Well, and it was World War II, farming. all that excess nitrogen that was being yes. used to build bombs. They, the chemical companies didn't know what to do with it, and they thought, "Aha, we'll sell it as fertilizer." fertilizer. Um, and so now, um, so prior to World War II, farming was what we now call organic farming. Mm -hmm. um, and subsequent to that, this nitrogen that we've been pouring into the ground has made our, our food a lot cheaper than it would be otherwise right. because there's so much more of it. And that includes fertilizer for corn, wheat, yeah, the barley, big crops all especially. the kinds of stuff that we do. Um, that, and you're bringing up a thing, it's politicized now. The idea that our government sort of, I wouldn't say regulates it, but sort of pays farmers for growing, like... Yeah, for growing... High fructose corn syrup. But they, right. they grow but high fructose corn syrup. But we grow, we pay farmers to grow commodity crops. Yes. And so the food subsidies, what most people don't know, is that our farm bill is mostly paying 
large companies that don't even, their headquarters are not in Indiana or Iowa or the Midwest where all this stuff is being grown. So most of those subsidies are being given to very rich companies right. who now, are making uh, corn oil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not trying to, I'm, I'm sure we're not trying to bash big business, but the idea is to get people to think about well, yeah. what sustainability is. Because people are entitled to make money. People are entitled to be in business. And people are in, I mean, that's sort of that's true. part of capitalism. Uh, that's true, but I would argue that, um, that who's being hurt by our our government food policies are sometimes small farmers. Co correct. Okay. It's, it's and the Walmart is Walmart process on the on the, in the food business. But I don't think I don't think the externalities are transparent to people. I don't think people think about well, this corn oil is cheap, and so I'm going to buy it. Um, but they don't understand why it's cheap. Okay. Or right. I'm going to buy this beef is two ninety nine a pound, which is outrageously cheap. Um, why is it so cheap? Yeah, and a lot of these big yeah, and things. do I really yeah. do I really want to be looking at eating a food that comes from in that from that direction rather than right. some that comes and from and that the sustainability um, I'm hesitant to word movement, but the, what you're coming from and your what you try to in class is be aware of these things, and it's not right. always just about price. And it's just sort of like mm, you're not paying a lot of attention to what you're putting in your mouth. Seems like you might want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and as Antonia has another chip. Uh, so um, we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 thebronkcom A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. Dr. Julie Drawbridge, Antonia, and I are talking about food, the environment, sustainability, and carbon footprint. Um, when it comes to food, I found a, an article that sort of sort of organized things into cars, <coughs> coal, cows, and consumption. Uh -huh. sort of a lot of, lot of, there's a lot of there's right. a whole bunch of stuff out there. And these are all the kinds of things that um, are related to the carbon footprint of the food that we eat. Correct. And so can you tell us a little bit more about these things and why we should be aware of this stuff? Well, the climate change is due to human activities. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at CO2 going into the atmosphere as a result of the things that we do. And that's changing the climate. Um, that, and, would be, that would be greenhouse Yeah, and so gases. that's it's greenhouse gases. So yes. it's greenhouse gas emissions. And it's a big problem, and I think it makes people feel helpless. It's like, what can I do? What is there anything I can do personally? Because other than, you know, um, advocating for change in energy policy or doing this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. You can think about where the food that's mm -hmm. going in your mouth comes from. And you can everything, also... Everything related to food has, has, uh, a, has carbon, a carbon footprint. Right. And it's a big carbon. Mm -hmm. It's a big piece of the carbon footprint. And you can also equate that, you can also improve your own health at the same time. So if you think about, um, we were talking about uh, the farms in the Midwest and growing corn. Billions and billions of pounds of corn are being produced, and that's 
and that's not food. It's actually being turned into animal feed. Right. So it's most food of, for cows. Mo- most of it is fed to animals, correct? Right. Most of it's fed, for, fed to animals. Some of it is exported. The uh, Chinese farmers are feeding our corn to their cows because it's so cheap. And some of it is turned into sugar. And so that's that involves a, an energy-intensive process, and you end up with a product in the grocery store like candy or sweetened soda or even if you buy um, if you buy the spaghetti sauce okay mm-hmm. if you look at the label sugar is added to most processed foods because it makes foods taste better we love sugar <laughs> um, and you can look at that and you can go well if I choose not to eat that that's probably better for me I've been told and it's actually true that I should eat Less sugar, less processed food. I should make things at home. So what what would a low-carbon shopping cart look like? Oh, that's that's really interesting. And the, um, so so I think humans are crazy about they, they make rules for themselves around food that they don't need to do. So a low-carbon foot um, shopping cart would be a shopping cart that's full of stuff that comes from the edges of the store, not the aisles. <laughs> Yes, right? almost every supermarket is organized in about the same way. Yeah, okay. so soup, you find that you go in, and then at the edges, you're going to find the fresh fruits and vegetables. You're going to find um, you're going to find the meat counter is there. Um, you're probably going to find the milk. The milk and butter and eggs are usually the furthest from the door. This is a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. That it is. I work in a grocery store, yeah. so I know all about this. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's to make you walk through the store. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, and, and somewhere around the edges, you will typically find um, where the frozen fruits and vegetables are, too. Of course, they're right next to all the frozen processed foods. But if you never go in the aisles, you're probably eating a lot less processed food than you are if you, um, if you just shop around the edges. Mm-hmm. Okay. If so, so, so car- just... <clears throat> what you're saying, though, too, a low-carbon footprint diet doesn't necessarily mean vegan, vegetarian. Oh, no. No, it, it includes a no. wide variety of things. It does include a wide variety of things, and that's good for your health. You uh-huh. would probably, that low-carbon footprint diet would probably include less meat and dairy than you're used to mm-hmm. and more vegetables and grains. And so I'm going to allow you to go into the aisle mm-hmm. that has the dried beans and, ri- and yeah. rice <laughs> and pasta in it, but not the other ones that have the, um, the canned whatever. Okay. <laughs> so if you replace some of the meat with grains and, and, mm-hmm. um, and other vegetables, then you would have a lower. I, I've always looked at it in my, in my own head as the less processing that goes into a food, right. the more, in a sense, sustainable it is. Am, right. am, I, am I wrong in that way? No, I think that's absolutely right. If you, you, You're adding up the carbons, right? Mm-hmm. So processing and packaging are huge. Mm-hmm. Also, your, your cart would um, have less food in it than you're probably used to buying. Think about the stuff that you throw away. Yeah, and if you get into this literature, there's all these calculations uh-huh. of what percentage of the food people in the United States buy and throw away, and I've seen numbers as high as 20, 30 percent-ish kind of stuff. Yeah. And That's a lot of food. You think about it, and I, I hate throwing food away. My son comes over, and he's like, is there anything rotting in the refrigerator that I can still eat because I'm so reluctant <laughs> to throw, throw things away? <laughs> so, so I think... That's really all you have to do. And then if you have some inkling about where your food is coming from. So did it come from really far away? Is this, 
um, is this an item that the that the grocery store buys from a, a local supplier, whether it be a big farm or a small farm? Mm -hmm. But the further it the further it has to travel, the more carbon uh, was emitted was getting it to you. Right. Yeah. And that's that's part of thinking sustainability. Mm -hmm. And again, we want to reduce carbon in the environment because these gas emissions are related to right. climate change. They change the nature of the atmosphere. The light that gets right. trapped on our planet and and all these sort of things happen. and the local farmers are actually experiencing a ton of climate change issues right now oh okay so the farms that we went to um we went to terhune orchards and we went to mm -hmm. gravity hill and they both try and uh, terhune orchards uses integrated pest management so they're not 100 percent organic and they grow some things organically and gravity hill is a 100 percent organic farm okay. and both of them mentioned springs with way too much water so climate models predict that New Jersey is going to be a lot like New Orleans, moving oh, into the not-so-distant future. Higher so humid, yeah. wet. Yeah. Okay, think humid, wet, and warm. And the farmers are, on starting to see that? are, are definitely starting to see that. Um, Pam Mount, who owns Terhune Orchards, was telling me about all this irrigation stuff they put in that they don't need. In fact, the springs have been so wet in the past few years that it's been very difficult for them to plant crops because New Jersey clay is really difficult to plant when it's wet because it's like a big lump of clay. Mm -hmm. um, so they've, uh, and at Gravity Hill, they've been covering the land so that it doesn't absorb water so that they can get the crops in. And they're also not planting crops in straight rows, they're making wavy rows so that the water uh, doesn't, doesn't sluice through and wash the, away all the stuff you just planted. Yeah, the seeds and, and the good soil which should be washed yeah, away. Yeah, so and they were both talking about how things are going in earlier and they're showing up earlier um, in the spring. So that's so climate change is affecting how our farmers are behaving right now. That's very interesting. Yeah. On a, lo on a, a on local, a local level. level. And they're seeing it and talking about it. Oh, very yeah. They're, fascinating. They, they spend the winter apparently chatting with each other about how are you dealing with this thing coming up. We may not see winter squashes grown in New Jersey in the near future because they stay in the field all growing season. Uh -huh. And then, you know, we pick them. These are the things like pumpkins, pumpkins yeah. and um, butternut squash and the hard right. acorn squash, the things that are hard. And because they have to stay in the field and it's been so wet, they've been decimated by fungal diseases. Oh, wow. So and that they would change go the industry because the, right. these things which consumers are with demand stored. are going to have to be grown somewhere else, else and then shipped here. Right. Or, or our farmers, which are clever people, are going to have to figure out different ways of, mm -hmm. of dealing with this sort of thing that comes up. Well, let me ask, so you're coming, a lot of our discussion is thinking about this. and. Um, I'm just going to ask you this question. Is the, the burden of awareness, is the burden of sustainability, should it be your, an individual thing? Should it be a government policy thing? What are your thoughts on that? So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Please elaborate. Yes. So I think people should take some responsibilities uh, for how they navigate the world. Okay. Um, and I think this one, the food thing is an easy call because you can actually – Use, lose weight, be healthier by acting in a way that is also better for the, better for the planet. Mm -hmm. um, but yes. Is, is, that, is that, is on the individual level, yes though, is it fair? Is it fair, you know, to, to put somebody who, you know, is in suburbia, has a car and can drive between these two markets or multiple markets versus somebody who lives in an inner city and might be in a food desert? So that's where the government comes in. Okay. 
Okay, and where we we think of food access as a right, not just something that you know where privileged every, people can swarm around food markets. Not everybody every, thinks that, but but I I, I would like to think I would in our argue nation that, that everybody could be fed. Yes, that would that be a wonderful. Social thing. justice would demand that. Yes, I agree with you on that. Yeah. So so there's a place for the individual, but there's also a place for the government, even though people should have free choice, I would think, of what they get to choose to eat. But you'd like to think the government would play a role in um, providing more sustainable and healthy options right. for Access. people who might not have a car who, who can drive to multiple markets or drive around and, exactly. and, and, and do that sort of stuff. There's also a, you know, a rich versus poor kind of thing. And yeah. you know, the joke is, because if you're hungry, you'll eat anything. And that's one reason like the corn syrup industry has been so booming, because it tastes good, it's cheap, and if you're hungry... And it's calories. It's calories. If right. you're hungry enough, you'll eat anything at the cheapest cost that you can have. But it's also causing diabetes and obesity. Yes. And that's... We, that, and so, there are health consequences to the choices so, people make. Right. Yeah. So I would argue only having access to that is unethical. Yeah. So it, it, it's... Ethics is a tough thing. Uh-huh. A, a lot of these discussions... Uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of Ryder University's Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health and health care. I hope today's program has helped inform you about food sustainability, the environment, and carbon footprints. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Julie Drawbridge. Thank you, Dr. Drawbridge. Thank you. There for are so me. many more things I would like to talk to you about. If you have questions or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Ryder University, please email us at hsi at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Ryder University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under Academics and Academic Programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.